Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined today by Lucy Ward, BT Sports co-commentator, who's making a welcome debut. Seb Stafford-Bloor of TIFO Football is making an equally welcome return. We'll be responding to a fascinating conversation with Sean Dyche. He's reflective and revealing about what happens when a manager is on the outside looking in. We also touched on the realities of running a Premier League club, in his case, Burnley. There are several very good and some extremely bad examples out there. Let's look no further than Manchester United. So Lucy, is this an object lesson in how not to operate? Do you know, Mike, it never ever fails to amaze me how football clubs are run. People presume that it is run properly, that it's proper business people within it and they make good decisions. And I worked in a in a football club for absolutely years and it doesn't always happen that way. I know Leeds is, is a bit of an outlier in terms of the way that it's been run in the past. But when you've got somebody who with a business brain in charge and we'll go on to Brighton later, they look weird because they're doing it right and I and I, I just I look at Manchester United and think there just doesn't seem to be a coherent plan in place in terms of recruitment it seems scattergun I feel a bit sorry for Ten Hag because he's obviously coming thinking that it's going to be run and he's going to get his, his recruitment done in a certain way and that hasn't happened you know even to the layman there's a lot of data around about different players and, you know, you look at the nuggets that have been picked up. Why on earth can Manchester United not pick up some of the nuggets of good players that are around? But honestly, it's staggering, really, that you, you sort of think, well, we could probably let them off because they're Man United and it's not happening like that. But the more and more it's gone on in this in, in the last few years, it just seems to be that... Anatovic, classic example, right? So they're sat in a room or they're, they're talking about Anatovic and nobody puts their hand up and goes, not a good idea for X, Y, Z reasons. So that tells me there's not any diversity of thinking there. There's nobody in there that thinks differently to someone else that'll actually go, sorry, but, you know, that is not a good idea because obviously the type of player he is, the type of person that he allegedly is as well and some of his, his, his thoughts and the way that he's behaved. And also you're Manchester United. So that tells the fact that that got to the stage where it was out of a, a conversation in a room between two people and somebody went, don't be stupid, we're not, that got further than that. That's a worry for Manchester United fans. 
Yeah, because recruitment, Seb, is symptomatic of, of, a, of a club, isn't it? And, you know, when you've got – it's basically, well, what's today's light bulb moment? Oh, well, let's go and get Rabio. Well, again, Rabio underwhelming. You've got – even the signings that, that Ten Hag has made, you looked at Lisandro Martinez, he looked really vulnerable on his debut, didn't he? Ten Hag – is understandably going for players that he knows, i.e. the Dutch contingent. But that isn't going to be enough to turn this around. And how long do you think it will take to turn Manchester United around? I mean, with continuity of management, coaching, three years. I think what's really interesting about United and what describes their situation is that their only pull in the transfer market is over players who are either connected to Ten Hag personally, who have played for Ajax, or who are damaged goods in the perception of the rest of the market. Rabio is a good player, but uh, someone who comes with baggage, someone who has proven to be a difficult character in the past. The trouble is, is that if you're if you're a player now, do you want to be part of this situation? Do you want to put yourself in a scenario where it's very tumultuous, the media focus is relentless and very, very unforgiving, and a lot of supporters are kind of then nine years into their doom cycle and their patience and, and a kind of... I don't know, like the, the, the appetite for patience is very, very limited. And so I think you have all these conflicting situations. I think we can sit here and say, yeah, two, three years, stable management, patterned, well-reasoned recruitment, the antithesis really of what Lucy's been talking about, which is the kind of, yeah, let's do this today and let's let's try that. And hey, Marco Natovic, who's 33 years old now, and you know that's the answer to what question I don't know. If you align all these factors and create the kind of altruistic environment that has been shown to succeed in the Premier League in the past, then you are still not going to find a perfect solution in six weeks. And everyone needs to accept that. And whether people like it or not, that is just the reality of Man United's situation. That's what happens when you spend a boatload of money, when you recruit players who don't benefit your dressing room, and when you cycle through coaches and philosophies and ideologies every 18 months you are left in this scenario and I don't really have any faith in any of those things happening I don't I think what we'll see is 18 months time if it doesn't go well same thing repeated and that's a fear because I I think English football needs a strong Manchester United I think that's to its benefit the Premier League certainly does so I don't it's not even a long tunnel with a light far off in the distance it's just long tunnel at the moment for United and, and that's that's really concerning. Mm. And if you're looking about clubs with a, a very sort of singular but very, very well-defined approach, you, you need not look too much further than, than Brighton, do you, Lucy? You've got there, you know, I'm told that the negotiating skills of, of, of their chief exec, Paul Barber, pretty much added another £10 million to Cucurella's fee, which went up to £62 million. The culture at that club, is it the key that, it's strong enough to sustain his loss and that of Bissouma so that, you know, a manager like Graham Potter can say, well, okay, you know, I accept that reality and I'll work within that reality and get the best out of the human beings around me. Yeah, I think it's very much strategy driven. You you look at the likes of Brighton, the likes of Brentford, which we'll, we'll go on to, but Paul Barber shouldn't be the exception in the Premier League in terms of his negotiation skills. that Because of what some of the others are like, and I know we're talking about Manchester United, they make him look like some sort of guru, when in reality, in a business sense, he's probably just a normal CEO who is, is high-level thinking, who negotiates, has, a, has terrific business sense. And it just shows you that he obviously also has people around him that 
no football. You know, I'm putting two fingers either side of my head there. But you need that as well. But I, 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 it just he he is like I say, he shouldn't be the exception. And I do think that the way that they they create their culture, Brighton, using it. And then, you know, we talk about Graham Potter. Could he go manage somewhere else? Would he even want to go to Manchester United? You know, is he the type of manager or is that the type of club that he would want to, to go to? Because at Brighton, he has that culture that he's helped create and the strategy of the club in terms of signing the players, selling them on for more and then always having one or two in the pipeline is the way a proper club's run. And, you know, until the likes of Manchester United get to that level, then... You know why would he want to go there to be judged on a short term? I feel sorry for Ten Hag because he's he's on the first step of it, what should be a long journey, and he's not really being given the tools. Yeah, well, Brentford are at home to Manchester United on Saturday. Now that model is an instructive contrast, isn't it, Seb? When you think about it, their recruitment is strategic and of a type. They spent about thirty million on two. Outstanding young players, Aaron Hickey and, and King Lewis Potter. Looks like Mikel Damsgaard is coming in from Sampdoria for about 16 million. Okay, there's a gamble on his fitness. He, he's had a lot of thigh problems since being the star of Euro 2020. But again, this is a club that knows what it's doing. Yeah, there's a couple of interesting things in there. So Damsgaard, as you said, Mike, about 12 months ago, there were some very, very big figures connected with him, like big price tags. And rightly so, because he'd had a he'd had a very good Euro twenty twenty, and it was reflective of the talent that he had. Hickey's another one. Hickey made his name in Serie A, and and I was I was surprised surprised by two factors of the, uh, parts of this. Uh, I was surprised by how much Brentford were willing to pay for him, but also how little they ended up having to pay for him. And that sounds like a contradiction in terms, given what we know about British players coming to the Premier League. And I think it's something that Lucy said actually, like. <laughs> In, in a way, Brentford are overpraised because they do things logically and smartly. They make good decisions. And yet that's an outlier. It's, it's, so, it's so unusual that it's kind of, it's treated as some kind of elusive science that nobody else can grasp. Whereas in reality, it's like, study your data, get the right people communicating what you see in the data, pass that on to people higher up the chain who will actually listen to the data people and then factor in what a manager wants, what he needs, what his style of football is, and then make a good decision. And that's what they do. And and that's kind of, that that's seen as innovative is, um, Brentford deserved, Brentford were innovative. I just mean today, like many years later, many years after people have got used to what Brentford do, it's still this kind of, goodness me, that's, that's just, that's, it's like a rocket science within football. And I do like them. I, I just think it's. I watched them. I watched them on Saturday, uh, Sunday, sorry, against Leicester, and um, for about an hour they were awful. And then Thomas Frank changed to put an extra man in midfield. Took off Ben Mee, had a bit of a rocky debut, and completely changed the picture of the game and turned a Leicester side who have had some very heavy spending behind them, maybe not this summer, but in the past, and made them look incredibly vulnerable. And I just thought that was very symptomatic of, of what Brentford are. It's like little tweaks, components put in here, players that most people probably haven't heard of doing good jobs in, in, in key positions, exploiting opposition weaknesses. And then from 2-0 down, dead and buried, you get a very well-deserved result. And actually, they very, very nearly won the game. And there's all kinds of good stories in there. Like Josh De Silva, I think, is one who suffered terribly from injury last year. He's a great player and um, scored a lovely goal, which is a nice moment. And it's just, there's a great benevolence to Brentford, which I which I think is is nice to see. But again, is at odds with uh, the norm in, in, in Premier League world at the moment. 
Mike, another interesting thing about Brentford, obviously we talk about like, the data-driven, they've got a template that works, but what they also do in terms of the youth, obviously they got rid of their academy famously mm. because they couldn't compete with, obviously, the, the other big London clubs around them. Now, what they then did, because it's difficult to predict, what they were saying is difficult to predict a young player how good they're going to be from 16 to 18 to 21. So what they did was they, they have the, their B team. I think they've brought back the professional development phase. I did read something that they, they were planning on doing that. But what, what they did is they made friends with the clubs around them. So Because what you can do as a club who is either in a lower division or is in a category lower than, than some of the big hitters is that you can just get yourself really angry that they keep pinching your players for for, for pittance at, at 16 and, and obviously they're allowed to do that so they make friends and make sure they sell on clauses and then they t get the rejects as it were from the bigger clubs and put them in the B team and they've had a lot of success from that so it's just mm. I think it's just looking at everything depending on your own situation and I think Brentford have, have done that well I think again they do things well in terms of a holistic approach to the players you know, I've worked in I worked in welfare for a number of years, and and if the player's not happy, then you're never going to produce a player from a player that's not happy. And so they look on, you know, the all-round development of players, and you know, and but again, it, it, it's not rocket science. It's not, you know, that's just logical. That's common sense that that somebody, a, a human being who's not happy, is not going to be able to perform to the maximum. Because mm. when you look at that human factor, Seb, you know, I, I try to look at it in let's say in the context of Chelsea where Lukaku, no matter what you think of him as a player, something obviously went wrong there with him and Tuchel and the whole sort of human dynamic of that, that relationship between mm -hmm. manager and player. Now, you know, you're, you're based in Germany now. You've got Timo Werner coming back with Leipzig. Now, again, have we got a similar issue going on there? But also... Again, we look at recruitment, and this is a, a hat tip here to, to Chelsea Youth, who are very active on, on social media. They recorded Chelsea's last 10 centre-forwards. And I just want to run you through them because it's really revealing. There's an awful lot of talent there, or nominal talent, which was just not fulfilled. Most recent, Werner, Lukaku, Higuain, Marata, Giroud, Batshuayi. Falcao, Pato, Diego Costa, Loic Remy, the last 10. There's some talent there, isn't there? God, Pato, I've forgotten about him. Um, <laughs> yes, there, there is. But then I think something interesting about Lukaku, and I, I, I going back to the Werner thing as well, Like I, I don't think it takes much of a reading of his career to realise that Romelu Lukaku needs to be a centre point, not just in a tactical sense, but as a person. He is a leader. He's someone that needs to feel like he, he matters, someone that feel, needs to feel important within a dressing room. And when you start challenging that, when you make him more peripheral, then that's when you start to see some of the self-doubt in his game, some of the kind of fragility to, to, to his football. Vern, the, the Werner thing, I, I don't think, was necessarily a... Um, a psychological mistake because I think he, he actually responded very well to some of the challenges at Chelsea like he he rallied he tried to grind his way into the team and he, he did a pretty good job I think the failure was that he was missold as a player in the sense that if you watched him play in Germany yes you'd have noted that he scored a lot of goals but I don't think you'd ever have described him as a natural goal scorer in the number nine sense he was a component very very quick very dynamic 
always someone who missed chances. Always, always, always. Had a lot of bad misses from his time at Leipzig, just as he did at Chelsea. Maybe not in quite the same way, but this was the player you were buying. And he arrives with these expectations. And because they're not really realistic, the player kind of becomes crushed underneath them. The other players on that list, well, there's no common rule, really. It's just, it's so scattergun. It's so reactive. But then at the same time, this is who Chelsea have been for, for a long time, particularly at first team level. You respond to things, you react to changes of management. And previously they've had someone who will write a massive check every time you need to do that. And that's what creates a kind of perpetual sense of transition at a football club, which if you're a technical world-class player who sort of lives at the top of the game forever, fine. If you're someone that needs to find a home in the game, and if you're a young player or a, a player who's more of a more at a kind of Timo Werner level, you need a bit more stability, I think. And so I, I don't know whether that explains why Alexander Pato didn't become a world-class player. Like, I, I think his decline began a long time before he, he arrived at Chelsea. Excuse me. But yeah, these things matter and they matter in different ways to different people. And that's I think that's the key there. So what happens then, Lucy, when you've got a hands-on owner, new owner, Todd Bowley in this case, where he's basically operating as a as a you know a quasi sporting director, spent money already, now looking to add you know, people like Fafana, maybe even Frankie De Jong, even Aubameyang, which I couldn't get my head around at all. Is that a dangerous principle to operate, where the boss basically calls all the shots, irrespective of his his football acumen or experience? Yeah, I've obviously seen that I, I do think it's a, a feature I mean he come, he came into the club and obviously didn't trust who was already there and I think in football a massive feature of people who work in football is a completely unnatural paranoia about anybody else who's good or has links with past and I think he's come in and thought everybody who had links with Abramovich he's basically dismissed however what I would say is that he's been clever in the way that he's invested in in this transfer window in younger talent. So we've got Carney Chukwemeka from Aston Villa, who is a big talent. And I think because he's got Neil Bath there and he's got the recruitment guy, Jim Fraser, there, they have stockpiled a few at 18s and 21s level. Because obviously with, with Brexit and the way that you can bring young players in and the age you can bring them in now, they're focusing, these big clubs are focusing on English talent. So they're looking around. So the likes of the young centre-back at Peterborough, I think it's Edwards, Ronnie Edwards, who was at the under-19s England win. That's the sort of thing. So I think that, that, you know, the media headlines is him taking control of everything and then just, you know, going on football manager, seeing who he likes and, and buying, which I know does happen. But he also has trusted his the, the people within the club who have got great knowledge of, of youth development and you know, backed them, put, gave them some money to make sure that that next group coming through is of a high level as well. So it's, you know, it depends which way you look at it and what you read and what you what you understand. Yeah, it looks like that he's completely taken control. But again, that's the paranoia that everybody in football, it's the same as a manager not having a, a, a top quality coach at youth level because they're worried about, you know, when mm. if I get sacked, then they'll, you know, it, it's it's... It's probably more of the lower levels that, but it, it does still happen. But I do think there's that lack of trust that just comes naturally to, to, to people in positions at football. Lucy, do you find that you can make a deal quite strange? Like, I, I think he's, he's a fabulously talented player. He's one of the best young midfielders I've ever seen. 
but you're paying 20 million pounds for a player with 12 months left in his contract with like I don't know like less than 500 Premier League minutes total last season I think I think I might, might be wrong about that I might well be wrong I just haven't had it explained to me properly but I, I don't understand the economics of that also within the context of the economics of the Cucurella deal I think it was I think Cucurella's a good player 60 million pound player I, 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 I that's <laughs> It, so I, I completely agree that he's had a little bit of a tough press, but then you do things which kind of support that. Like the the Jules Conde miss was a bad one because he's a super player and he made Chelsea better. That should have got done. Um, uh, Chukameka, 20 minutes, it's, that's a lot of pressure on a boy, really. I know he's just won the under-19s. And, is that, you know, is that it's, symptomatic, Seb, do you think? Uh, sorry to butt in here, but uh, you look at, it's almost like the Bellingham principle. You know, everyone, and you'll know this better than most, Lucy, that, you know, names get banded around of kids who are 12 and 13 and they're coming through. Bellingham came through, fulfilled all the expectations which were extravagant in the first place. Now, maybe Chelsea are looking and thinking, well, we'll take a punt on this 18-year-old simply because we've heard so much about him, we've seen so much about him. Let's get in there early. I know I used to work for the Premier League and who looked after different clubs and had to do one-to-ones with these players and Carney was was one of them. I think the homegrown part of it is is important in these big clubs so that they that, you know if they fill in their bench and and it has to have a certain level. Chukwuemeka is obviously it fits that profile, but I do I do think there's a lot of everybody's talking about a certain player so well we're going to get him and and it's happened in the last few years really that the clubs have tried to just hoover up as many of the as the good players as they can from the you know the lower league clubs and then you they they don't get through because it's that there is no pathway so for a young player Carney must have supreme confidence that he will get through to the, the Chelsea first team. And he's probably in a position, and I think that's why Villa played him quite a lot of the, the last season, other than being a very good player, is it puts him puts him in the in the shop window. And so they've got the maximum money that they possibly can for them. But it's it gets ridiculous because what, as soon as egos are involved, you know, that you, you cannot underestimate the size of the egos of these people that, that run clubs, that, that are within clubs, that make these sort of decisions and, and, and getting one over on a, another club that might be interested is, um, is a lot more valuable than you think. Well, that brings us very neatly to Spurs, who um, are at Chelsea on Sunday, Seb. I look at Spurs, Daniel Levy. I always think in the back of my mind there's a long-term plan to sell that club for vast profit. But do you detect a change in emphasis this season, one driven by Conte's personality and his history, but also there's a little bit of planning for the future here. You know, the, the signing of Destiny Udogi from Udinese, a young left wing back, basically that's for the future. Has there been a change of strategy, do you think, at Spurs? Maybe in a couple of ways. I think any time you bring in a new sporting director or managing director of football to give Paratici his, his proper title, you're going to have a change in philosophy. I think what you're saying now is a compromise between all the people involved at the football club. So the long-term stuff suits the club. Some of the more immediate signings, so players like um, Perisic and um, Richarlison and to a certain extent Yves Basuma, these are for the now players. And so it's a way of keeping everybody happy. I mean, <clears throat> if you look at sort of 
at Spurs' next three or four years, there's some difficult moments coming up, which they're going to have to tackle. They're probably going to have to dedicate entire summers to. So Son Heung-min turned 30. Harry Kane's not far behind. Eventually, you're going to have to replace a massive hole in the team. And that's going to be a lot easier when you fixed your fullback positions. The defence is quite young too. Romero is clearly the future of that defence. He's a superb player. I think he's already one of the best centre-halves in the, in the division and getting better. Could be a bit volatile, but no no little talent. Basuma, Bantancourt, I, th- I think one of the stories of this half of the season might actually be Ryan Sessegnon. He's come back with a bigger body, looks much more assertive. He's starting to show... Do you remember how excited everybody was about Ryan Sessegnon four or five years ago and how mm. what a brilliant player he was at England age group uh, level and how pliable he looked? I think you're starting to see that again at senior level. Jed Spence is there. So it's not, I wouldn't describe it as future-proofing. I think it's just a solve as many different problems and it is for as many different areas as possible within the same summer. Um, and it's very, very encouraging because you Spurs are actually getting better. I think in previous years, what you saw is you saw depth signings. There weren't many players that raised the ceiling at Tottenham. You had players that kind of covered for worst case scenarios in rainy days. You know, you chuck a George Kevin and Kudu in and a Clinton and G and uh, these players don't move the needle. They just don't. They might, they might prove to be clever one day. In those two cases, they didn't. But they don't help you. They don't put any more weight on your punch in the Premier League. And that's what's been different this summer. So it's, it's very, very encouraging. Mm. In terms of um, you know your uh, immediate workload, Lucy, you're um, co-commentating on let's call it the Legends Derby, Aston Villa Everton at uh, the weekend. Stephen Gerrard, there's a few growing pains going on there, aren't there? Frank Lampard, you, you still get the sense that the jury's out on him. Again, they won't be insulated from pressure and harsh judgment because of their playing records. But how long do you think? individually each has got. I know it's stupid to say that it's a really big game and it's the second game of the season, but there will be a lot of attention on this one, won't there? Yeah, I, I do. Th- but it just, you know, I watched Leeds Wolves at the weekend and Leeds won, but Wolves had so many chances to, to win the game during that, that Leeds fans are now happy and they wouldn't have been had it just gone a little bit different, if that makes sense. So, you know, I think Villa was surprised by Bournemouth playing five at the back. I think that when you look at the stats that they had better chances to score but just didn't deal with what set pieces and what Bournemouth threw at them. So, you know, I look at Steven Gerrard and because he didn't win that first game, all the attention now is on the fight he's picked. And I say fight, I don't mean fight, you know, with dropping Mings. And Mings is a fan favourite because he did well in the in the promotion season when he was on loan there. He was the captain. You could tell last season that Steven Gerrard wasn't having him. For whatever reason, that's what managers, they, they, they make those decisions and he was looking to replace him defensively. And obviously, you know, you don't give the captaincy to somebody that you're not going to have in your in your first 11. But I do think that, that it, it seems that there's a majority of people who just can't wait for these two to fail you know these were top players I I just get the sense that it's like it's reveling in the fact well he's not as good as he was as a player however isn't the whole point of employing managers like those young coaches who've who've done the qualifications so have that structure in place of, of coaching they have very very good assistance with them in terms of experience and they play the, the so the whole point of, of of employing people with that sort of experience is when push comes to shove and the proverbial hits the fan in the changing rooms they have been there and they can give that experience over, although 
it's not as easy as that when you're not winning Premier League games. And I think as far as Villa are concerned, I don't think he knows his best team yet. I don't think Coutinho's helping him out, brought him in as a big signing and he's not particularly playing well. I think Buendia is probably a better option, but he may change how he plays. The two up front don't work together. They just need to be one of them two. So you've got to pick either Watkins or, or Danny Ings. As far as Frank Lampard's concerned, he has just been dealt with the years of mismanagement at Everton and now he's got not much money to spend. So he is working under the constraints of, of FFP. And I think they just need time, the pair of them. The only thing I would say about when I'm talking about experience, that, that, that the pair of them don't really have the experience of of losing, particularly Lampard I'm talking here, and being at the bottom of the league. He does now because that will have been a massive shock for him, managing a club that was really famous club in this country who would never go get relegated and there was a chance a massive chance that that would happen last season he's now got that experience but I think at the time when you're used to winning all the time in your football career do you have the answers when players are looking at you and they're asking for help in terms of training and and managing them psychologically and I think that that's that's probably the difference with what they've experienced so far but Lampard now has that so I think he'll probably say that the experience of the end of last season has been the, probably the most valuable experience he's ever had in his career. Mm. Well, Everton, of course, are often mentioned as a potential landing spot for Sean Dyche. He left Burnley on Good Friday after nine and a half years in charge. Unemployment is part and parcel of his job. So how's he coping with it? Welcome, Sean. Now, you're a football lifer. Can you remember the last time you weren't intimately involved on the first day of a new season? It's got to be a bit weird, isn't it? I come out of Watford pre-season, or just before pre-season, or when we just started around that time. So that was one as a manager. As a player, other than injuries, I'd been around it all my life. So since I was 16, I've been involved in some form of football match or another on the first day of the season, other than the one I mentioned when I came out of Watford. So, yeah, but I'd take that, to be honest. You know, over 10 years of being a manager, including Watford, of course, and then, you know, if you miss one beginning of the season in 10 years and probably one, two, sorry, since I was 16, then I would have took that when I was 16 and I was starting out, I can assure you. What have you missed about football? Do you know what, so far, I haven't missed that much in the sense of, other than the drive and the will to get a team together, to organise it, to make it better, to make it win, of course, because that's sort of why you do it. But the actual idea of it, I don't... I'm more obsessed with how you get teams to operate and win, and I was obsessed as a player with winning. It was the thing that kept me going. You know, that, so I I'm not a football obsessive in the sense I don't sit and watch every single game. You know, during the summer, people are texting me watching the game, I'm like, no, you know, so... Partly because, like I say, I'm obsessed with the idea of winning and putting teams together, and partly because you need a break from it. Even I didn't want a break from it, I must make that clear. I was active, I was ready, the energy's good, the will is good. But when you come out of it, you do decompress a little bit and you think, do you know what? Get back to a bit of real life, you know, and doing things that I haven't been able to do for the last 10, well, 10 and a half, 11 years. Do you think you'll go to watch games or is there this sort of sense of being a like a ghost at the feast? You know, I know we all laugh about the vultures row and, you know, clubs putting unemployed managers together. 
usually and they turn up when there's there's change imminent at that particular club. Does that perception of you change with your changing circumstances? I think the thing is, when I was last at Watford, I made a rule of thumb because I didn't enjoy that because that happened to me at Watford. I got a bad start at Watford. We'd only won a few games in the first 13 before we beat Peterborough and we started turning it around. And one game, there was 11 managers there, 11 out-of-work managers. And I remember thinking, that's not for me. <laughs> so when I came out of Watford, I made a rule. I'd go to either people I know or clubs around my area. So at the time, I was living in Northampton. I went to MK Dons because they were always very, very friendly to me. We played in pre-season games and stuff like that. I went to Nottingham Forest because of my links there and I still had links there. And I went to Leicester because of John Rookin there, who I'd known through the youth system. And I just stuck with them three clubs. Popular misconception when I was at Burnley or when I went to Burnley, I went to the Cardiff game and it was suggested that I was around because the manager, blah, blah. And the manager had already gone. Eddie had already gone. So that's why I went to the Cardiff game. They asked me, the manager had gone, I agreed. So that thing's not for me, really. I don't judge people if that is for them, but that's not for me. So I tend to go in my locality or people I know well who obviously just say, look, do you want to come and take a game in? And all levels, by the way, other than my son. My son's at Northampton Town, so that's a given, obviously, home or away. You are a, a dis- in a distinctive profession where it's almost streamlined. You're now, in essence, waiting for someone else to vacate the position they currently hold. It's a very strange sort of world, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is, but everyone knows it. You know, everyone knows the the rules of the jungle. You know, we all know it, all football people, all football managers, kind of differently but similar even as a player, you know. You're still looking over your shoulder. You're still thinking, I better keep myself going right here because if not, they'll replace me. So, but when you're a manager, it's obviously a lot clearer um, the view of that. But we all know it. So I don't think you... I certainly wasn't looking over my shoulder all the time. You work hard. You try and get the team to win. You do the best you can. You know that there's always someone around the corner. Um, so you've got to get the results, you know, to make sure that doesn't happen to you. You were sacked on Good Friday. Now, self-reflection is is a key element of management, isn't it? What perspective has time given you on that whole process and that whole experience? I think... A lot of it you know, you know, you, you can, you can, it's hard to explain. I don't mean um, when you've been working, particularly you've been working somewhere for a long time and I had a big say in how that club operated, not just me, but a lot of people and staff, etc. And when change comes, you can smell it coming. And some change is good, of course, and some you're going, hmm, not sure. Like most people, they want everything doing yesterday. It's a very peculiar business for that. We've seen it happen many, many times outside of Burnley, you know, in football. People want to piece together a new way of working very quickly, and it's very difficult to do that. So some of the challenges that came our way last season were they were just realities of of a change in ownership, a change in business. I tried to work as cleanly and, and purely as I could with that and still get results. The fact is we didn't get enough results, and I believe the team should have got more results. Lots of other factors, some private, some not, but we didn't get results. So I've never hidden behind that. And I and I would I would hide behind it if I didn't think the team was that good. But we definitely had a team that could at least stay in the Premier League last season. It needed that definitely needed rejuvenating. There's no two ways about that. But that was a money issue from two, three years ago. You know, not just about a change of ownership. That had been going on for two or three mm-hmm. years. There just wasn't the investment to keep rejuvenating the squad. Yeah, yeah. You had what, nine and a half years at Burnley. Is that sort of dynastic role and 
that consistent influence possible anymore in modern football? I think it's getting harder. You know, the, the demand from outside of the club, the demand on the ownership sometimes is is so big that they do make changes. I, I was fortunate that we had a very, very strong-minded board. So for what they didn't always put in investment, they certainly put in belief in me and letting me work, letting my staff work. And that was a big, big uh, strength for me. You know the story. We're up, we went down. They didn't... In fact, they didn't even flinch. They didn't sort of say, look, if it doesn't go right, you're out. None of that at all. And they knew the realities. They knew that the money had to be put into the training ground and the infrastructure. And we all agreed that, but they stood by the agreement. We went down and then we came back up again. So it's not as easy as it sounds, but they did stand by me in that respect. I think that's getting harder. There's a load of rights and wrongs. We can all debate the rights and wrongs of why ownership changes the manager and all that. Just a fact of life. It's a fact of the job. It's always been there. But as you know, they've crunched down the, the timescales. You know, it used to be if a manager, I don't know, if they were given a three-year project, they'd probably get a year and a half, you know, two years to make it work. Nowadays, you're given a three-year project, you probably, if it's not working within four, five, six months, the noise changes. And if it's not working in seven or eight, they're probably going to change you. And that's just that's just the way it is, almost. Mm. Is it a reflection, Sean, though, of the changing nature of owners, club owners? You know, in the Burnley situation, you've essentially got a group of, of venture capitalists getting involved, you know, American influence. Burnley's not unique in that, but Burnley is unique in being you know, almost the archetypal community club. Have you got two things there clashing and you're caught up in the middle of it? I don't think there's a clash. What is a change of thinking, a change of culture? And you've got to, you know, against maybe maybe misconception, you know, I'm happy to be flexible, more flexible than people think. I'd like to think I need to stand my ground. I'm strong when I need to, of course. That's part of being a manager. But I think there's a, there's a time when you have to be flexible. And I think... The rights and wrongs of it, as I said, we can debate. But the fact is, the changing face of football means you are getting a lot of different diverse clubs with different diverse owners and roles within the club. You know, the, the rise of the technical director, director of football, many different names, but you understand the strength of certain clubs with chief execs and owners. Some owners want to be very, very hands-on. Some owners want to sit in the distance. So there's so many different variances now and so much money involved, certainly in the top division. I mean, the championship was, and now it's a bit softer because of financial reasons, but generally the top two divisions have a lot of money involved in them. So if you pull that, the melting pot, it's fair to say you have to be flexible-minded because that's the truth of the market. You know, the market is telling you as a manager, you've got to be open-minded to different ways of working. And I was certainly open-minded. I don't think that I'd be surprised, let's put it that way, if there was a question mark from the ownership at Burnley if I wasn't being open-minded. Certain things I challenged, that's part of your role. And certain things I thought were the way modern football is changing. So, like I said, I don't want to over-egg that. It interfered with some of what we did, but not much. A lot of it was a line in the future of, of Burnley. And the fact is the team didn't win enough games to carry on the journey or to carry on as it was going. And now they've got to remodel it and rethink it and move it forward. And that's the choice that they've made. Yeah, let's look, if we could, at this sort of period of personal transition, if you like. Yeah, I'm sure you, that you retain your non-negotiables, you know, basics like attitude or diligence or or respect for people and maybe for tradition. But in this time, you know, was it three or four months now, have you actually re-evaluated your principles and your approach to the game and to management? 
The way we looked at it at Burnley when I first went in there was key core values. You have to have something, as a, I call it a base to work from. There's certain key core values. There's no reason, it's not about me, there's no reason how they should change in life, in my opinion. You know, you want a team that's dedicated to the job. You want a team that, in my personal thoughts, you want a team that shows respect. Not just respect to each other, respect to people in general, respect to fans, respect to their profession. Of course you want a great attitude. A great attitude is everything. You know, they, these are things that should be just part of life for me. That's how I was brought up, and I still believe it. I try and instill it into the people around me, certainly my children, and my wife does that as well. You know, they're, they're things that I don't think... I, they shouldn't be negotiable. Why, why should they be negotiables? You know, I shouldn't have to ask a player to work hard. He should just want to work hard. So that should be a given. Outside of that, of course, there's many different ways of operating. You know, we operated in a way that I felt could be successful for Burnley Football Club and keep them in the Premier League. That's why we did what we did. Not about me, not about my personal brand. We've got these players. What is the best way of giving them the best chance to increase their careers? And therefore, if we can increase their power and their capacity and their deliverance of performance, then you, well, you hope you're going to get the right results, which keep the story going. And we did that for many seasons. And I believe we could have done it last season. And I believe we would have done it last season. You talk about a brand there, I have to say, and I have to admit, I hate the word and I hate the, the implication of the word because a brand to me is almost inauthentic. You know, it's a creation rather than the core of who you are. If you take away the B word, how would you like to be regarded as what you stand for? Yeah, look, I mean, it, there's a lot in it now. A lot of these business terminologies come into football and, you know, there's a lot of people now spinning words around about football and dressing it all up and this new wave of everyone's got the new answer to football. It's been going a long time, 140-odd years. So I don't think we've all got a new answer, you know. We might have a different answer. I don't think there's a new one out there. Not so far. I haven't heard too many new ones. But it is a word that's out there. It is recognised as being, oh, your brand has to be this, your brand has to be that. Beneath that... I'd like to think people think I'm straight. I'd like to think they think I tell it how it is, but not in an ownership way. Do you ask me a question? I'll give you a, a, what I think would be a fair and reasonable answer. I don't think, I, to use that word, I overbrand what I do. I certainly don't try to. Most of my friends from many years ago, and I've just been away with a few of them, they keep me online. They'll go, no, no, you might be getting a bit carried away now, and I don't think they've ever had the need to say that to me because um, they know who I am. And most people who meet me find I am what I'm talking about now. This is how I am. You know, I try and be authentic to that. I have my own fair share of weaknesses, I'm sure of that. But I just think behind it is someone who works hard, someone who wants to do the right thing for others around, not about me, about my team, about my staff, and about how we as a collective can deliver. And that would always be my go-to situation and trying to make the best for the players as well. You know... If you can affect the person, you can affect their performance. So a big thing for me is affecting them in a manner they deem appropriate, treating them in a manner that they can affect their own performance. And as we all know, if you get more people on board and more people increasing their capacity and performance, obviously it's going to bring a higher chance of success for them and for us. It was interesting you mentioned you know, players and almost recognised them as individuals. The late Bill Walsh, the legendary NFL coach, you know, made a great play of his approach to treating his players as individuals. But he also made the point that coaches should be lifelong learners. Now, you know, when you're out of work, is that the opportunity that you have to continue your self-education, not just as a football man, but as a man, I suppose, 
What have you been doing to continue that self-education? Well, at the moment, I've been pretty calm with it because I wanted to have a summer, first summer I've ever had. I've just been away. It's the first time since I've been professionally involved in football at 16 that I've ever been away outside of June, other than tours, you know, as in training tours. So there's one. I thought, well, I've got to do something more normal. Seeing friends, Saturday afternoon, going for, a, I don't know, a barbecue, a couple of beers, stuff like that. Within that, there comes a period when you go, right, OK, I'm ready to park that now. You still dip your toe in it, but you start relearning, re-educating. So I've done a few podcasts where I get some feedback as well. So I don't mean necessarily like you're talking to me now, but other ones with a panel, you know, and I've got a few of them coming up with the leaders in sport where we share ideas, share thoughts. I spoke to some, funny enough, I spoke to someone from the New York Jets and spoke to them and had a good meeting with them via Zoom and, you know, speaking about different training ideas, different cultures, different ways of working. A few visits, but I've been intrigued by the people I've met and met some very important people in life and just chatting with them. You know, you can pick up golden nuggets. It doesn't always have to be a formal meeting and a formal situation. You don't always have to go into a company. Sometimes you can just be in people's company and you can pick up some amazing little bits of gold, you know. So within a bit of downtime and a bit of of sort of rest and recuperation, there's always little things that come along and visits and all that type of thing. And just sometimes conversations. I spoke to many, many football people over the summer, you know, casually, some more guidance. People have rang me about different situations, about players and all that sort of stuff. So I haven't parked it. It's in the background, but at the minute I'm just trying to live life but it'll come again. You know, you can imagine the bug comes back and once it does, we're all all hands on deck and ready to go. So who have you been actually seeing externally? And, and, and try, if you could, to actually articulate the importance of that external experience. You know, I know, I suppose one thing that we've got in common, you know, we both looked very hard at the boat race crews. I know you worked uh, with uh, Sean Bowden at, at Oxford. I knew Sean when he was also on the other side of the fence. And I actually lived with a Cambridge crew for three months where they were the most professional non-professional sports people I've ever met those sort of external examples can you give me some specifics about the people you've seen and what you've learned from them well the ones over the summer I met I went to the Champions League but I was a guest there so I met a couple of people high up in the, I don't, I don't want to name names, but a couple of people very high up at PSG, spoke with them about their challenges, about what the product is, about how they're going out there and, and evolving, if you like. Similar with some people in tennis as well, down at Wimbledon, you know, picking their brands, listening to them. And, and I can assure you, for someone who talks a lot, I do listen more than people think. Varying <laughs> phone conversations, you know, with people who are in business as well as, as sport. Very fortunate at the Monaco Grand Prix to meet some amazing people. One in particular listened to the journey of a young driver who might make it, might not, what comes next and that type of thing. So, you know, these are amazing situations that I wouldn't... Now, don't get me wrong, I must make it clear, I'd prefer to be working, but these are amazing situations that I've put off for years, that people have invited me to for years. I've spoken, I love music, I've been to various gigs. Of course, I'm there to enjoy it, but usually I get in a situation where I can meet the managers, the tour managers, the owners, and you find out some amazing things about what they're dealing with, the challenges, what they're dealing with. And no surprise to either of us, there's some amazing, consistent things that come across no matter what business you're in. They come across, you know, organisation, strategy, demand, dealing with demand, pressure, all of them things. They cross over most of these situations. So... Some of it is picking their brains on individual moments. Some of it is that general view 
to remind yourself, look, I'm in this industry and people use that word a lot. Oh, it's pressurized, it's this, that and the other. Guess what? There's loads of these people who are working on that high level. Maybe the difference is they're not always in the public eye, which, of course, football does put you in the public eye and particularly in the Premier League. In football terms, who are the people who are your your touchstones? You do have a very good reputation within the profession. Emma Hayes, who was, was the first guest on our podcast, you know, raves about you. You know, she talks to you quite a lot, doesn't she? Does that personal reputation mean a lot to you? But also, do you need to have the humility to actually go to people and say, well, okay, critique me, tell me where I went wrong? Yeah, I don't think it's telling where you went wrong. I don't think there's many who do that, but there's plenty of people I speak to and I've used down the years who you might ask opinion and, and ones I invite to games. Uh, John Duncan's been a big influence on my career. He's unfortunately very ill, but he's been a big influence on my career. I've used him varying times just for an outside opinion. So Alex has always been there since I've been up north. He was always there, still spoke to me just a, a couple of weeks ago, just literally check in, how are you going? Varying managers down the years, coaches. I mean, there's so many people who, like I say, you don't necessarily say, where did I go wrong? But you just go, look, you know, what are your thoughts from the outside looking in? But equally, don't forget, there's a bit of empathy. They understand that, well, the, the, sorry, the football people and, and some business people, they understand the demand, you know, they understand the situation. And I think the idea of, of me on a, on a personal level is just really to find that way amongst all the, the madness of the Premier League, particularly because of the coverage is vast, of still being yourself. You know, you've got to remember who you are and that bit can be a bit tricky. And I'm sure I'm a different person now than I was 10 years ago. We all are. But the game does rub off on you and it does make you different. And the media and all these things, they do make you slightly different. So the reason I'm bringing that up is important. You do find people around you can ground you again and bring you back down to, right, OK, are you still in sight of what you are, what you need to do, the work you need to do, et cetera, et cetera? Because can, it can influence you and it can change you quite a lot. I would imagine that your skills are transferable because essentially what we're talking about is leadership here and you just happen to have football as that platform for yourself. When you look at what you could do in the future, would, could you ever see yourself working abroad? Before I answer that, one thing I forgot to mention there. You mentioned Emma Hayes. I think she's a class act. And the reason is because when I heard her speak, it was actually at the Leaders in Sport when we when became sort of friendly, there wasn't the gender thing. She just went, this is what I do. So it wasn't about whether she's brilliant at football. I just thought, you're a person who's not doing the gender thing. You're just going, this is what I do. And I saw it the same. I thought, yeah, she spoke fantastically well, but not in a way, do you get what I mean? Not in a way that she was like, I'm a woman, you're men. It was just in a way of football's this, football's that, this is how I manage, these are the problems I deal with. This is That's what I liked about it, and that's maybe why we aligned. Going back to your question about working abroad, I think if the right opportunity came, I've been offered a couple of things, you know, which are overseas, but not the kind of jobs that I'd want at this stage. But I think I think the idea of when you get older and you're growing and you're maturing and, and obviously your family are getting older as well, then it opens up more freedom, if you like. A lot of all of our lives, and people sometimes forget, you've got to have an incredibly open-minded family unit if, you, if you're going to start moving around the world, you know, with football. And some managers do, of course, particularly for the, the, well, seemingly the desire for the Premier League and to be in the Premier League. And I think, you know, as the family get older, they get more secure in their own lives and what they want then you look more open-mindedly about what could be next. Um, so I'm certainly not against it. I just think it'd have to be something where, you you know, you could really get your teeth into it. Because on the other hand, I don't... 
I would certainly wouldn't name names, but I know managers have taken roles and they're only there a few days a week and then they've got to fly back and fly here and fly there. I think if you're going to do it, you've got to really get your teeth into it, in my opinion, and, and be around it as much as you can. Just forgive me this plug, because uh, if you listen to it, Emma Hayes on our first podcast, she was actually talking exactly about what you were talking about there. Just looking at the sort of balancing act that you have to you have to do here, Eddie Howe waited pretty much 18 months for Newcastle. Have you got that sort of patience? Well, another person I think a lot of, Eddie, maybe there's reasons for, and I think, I'm, I'm sure, because I knew he had a challenge with his family life when he was at Burnley, and, you know, the, the distance and the change of, you know, you can imagine there's a big yeah. cultural shift there. So for him to consider that yeah. job and then go, he must have, I'm sure that was a big part of it. I haven't spoken depth with him about that, but I imagine that was part of it. Leap of faith, probably as you're suggesting, probably thought, well, I'm 18 months out and this is a big situation to, you know, if I'm going to turn one down, which obviously he didn't, but if he was going to turn it, he's like, well, this is a big situation. This might not come along again. They're the challenges. You know, people forget that because people say to me, to give me a bit, it always makes me laugh, they go, um, what job are you going into next? And I go, it's not that easy. You don't just you don't just pick a job and go, tell you what, I fancy <laughs> Arsenal this week. You know, it's not quite as easy as that, as we all know. Um, and some people sort of suggest that you just get to ring them up and go, look, I'm yeah. ready. Now. Doesn't you... turn up on LinkedIn, does it? Exactly, exactly. 20, 20 Premier League clubs, 20 managers, and they sort of presuppose I'm just going to ring someone and go, right, I'm ready now, can I have a job? Obviously, it's not that easy. So, yeah, sometimes you have to wait long enough. And, and that was a tricky one. I mean, when I came out of Watford, I was offered a few roles that weren't in the championship. I felt at that time I could handle and I could deal and perform in the championship as a manager. So I stuck to my guns and I turned down two or three, which I considered were still respectful, decent football jobs in Division One. But I felt I could do something in the championship. So I waited, got the opportunity, went through all the interview process and got the job. And, and you know, the rest is history. So... It is a tough one. I don't think there's the exact answer. That's my point. If one comes your way, which one do you take? Which one do you turn down? Other than the obvious, there might be a really obvious situation. You go, that's not for me. You know, and there there are some of them. But generally, I'm respectful enough. I play through all the divisions, managed in the top two. I'm respectful enough to at least listen to most people and share a view. I just want to end, if I could, please, Sean, with a reference to, you know, a guy we both know pretty well, A.D. Boothroyd. There's an observation by him on you, which was along the lines of, you have got the best way of selling yourself without selling yourself. Do you agree with that, by the way? But also, in that vein, do you have any message for potential employers out there? I do someone I respect a lot. There's a few myths and stuff about his style and all that sort of stuff. But I learned a lot from his managerial style, the way he structures things, his organisation and the like. Still speak to him now. I think the selling selling yourself without selling yourself, that came from our, he, he got rid of me as a player, not in a vicious way, just wanted another version of me, like a different version of me. And he bought him Malky McCoy, did a brilliant job for him as captain and stuff. And I went down to watch the youth system and met him and sat on a, bench outside the training ground at Watford, which I knew well, of course. And we were just chatting and I said, this is what I feel, this is what I think, this is what I believe about the young players and player development. I'd already done my licences and stuff like that. And he phoned me about a week later, sorry, the youth manager, David Dodds, phoned me and said, the, the gaffer wants you to come in and just spend a week with us. So I said, yeah, cool. And then he told me that about a month later when I was employed. He said, look, you've got an amazing way sometimes of just being you, but selling it when you're not selling it. And he said, it's a really powerful thing because it's very authentic. And I said, well, 
he knew me a bit, and I said, well, it's pretty much like that as a player anyway, um, pretty much like that as a, as a person, I hope. It's, it is a nice compliment, but it's not a deliberate thing. I don't, I don't go out there going around the world going, oh, if I say this and I say that. In fact, the opposite. If I be myself, then you hope that people accept it. And not everyone does, by the way. I'm a, known as a little bit Marmite, let's say. So <laughs> I'm not, not, not everyone's accepting of my views and what I think, I can assure you. But generally, it's just putting out there in the way that you hope that people believe you are being authentic. And he certainly did with me. And, and I'm, I thank him for that. And I believe he's right. Well, mate, thanks very much for your time. And um, let's say, I hope to see you back, mate, soon. Fantastic. Take care. And you, man. So, Seb, much more measured and reflective than the image suggests, isn't he? Yeah, but I've always enjoyed listening to Sean Dyche. Like, I've been to enough of his press conferences and while they're tend to be quite tedious affairs and very generic and, you know, exercising, saying as little as possible and just getting out of the room. Like Tony Pulis used to stand in his press conferences. Sean <laughs> always struck me as someone who was forthright, someone who spoke his mind. And that's not just because you've interviewed him on this podcast, but he was someone that you actually got a sense of what he felt genuinely about the situation he was in at any one time. And I feel like your interview there... I think that's more of that. That's the that's the person that not I know. I don't know Sean Dyche. I've been in rooms with him. That's not the same thing at all. But that's the character that I got used to hearing from after games. And um, he's a very entertaining person. He's a very colourful personality. I also think that um, he's he's someone that thinks quite deeply about the game. I've always thought, and that's not the image. And I think that's something that came across in your interview. Someone who is very circumspect about the challenges that afflict modern managers, particularly when he was talking about branding. That was a very interesting part of it because it's something that I don't really consider. Like you do in a way because every manager has this perception around every manager and this guy plays this way and this is another way and this one uses the transfer market. And the idea of actually managing that perception is a little bit alien. So to hear from the inside what that's like is was very, very interesting. Mm. What did you make of him in terms of, you know, th- we, we had this conversation about self-improvement, Lucy, and really the only time a manager can do that is when he's out of a job. The breadth of people that he spoke to, you know, Formula One, Wimbledon, uh, PSG, New York Jets, I found that quite interesting. Yeah, I've listened to him speak at a a Premier League conference and he is a really modern, forward-thinking manager. And just because he's stereotyped because of the football that he might or might not have played at Burnley, I think that... The, the reason he played the football he played was because of the players that he had and because he had to stay in the, the Premier League and, 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 you know, and had to find a way of playing football. And obviously that ran its course and I probably, he probably accepts that. The interesting thing I found about that was that he's learned... He obviously wasn't happy with the new owners and what they did and, and he talked about the change that they were trying to make and he was very, very polite about it, very clever... But all I read was he wasn't happy. They were asking him to change bits about how he managed and he obviously wasn't happy. But as a manager, you learn that you don't leave a job. However annoyed you are about leaving a job, you don't say anything about because the future employers will look at that and think, well, Mm. you know, did you see when he left Burnley? He he, He was an absolute nightmare. But he was clever enough to say everything without saying anything about the, the new owners. That's what it tells that from my experience of football and football managers, he was telling us then 
that he wasn't happy with how they approached it when they came in as new owners. However, having said that, he's the type of person who will speak to anybody to get little nuggets of information that will make him better. Because in his mind, he's got, this is me as a manager. This is how I work. I get everybody to buy in. My work ethic or his base, as he described it, was, was hard work and everybody buying into it and doing everything they can to make everybody perform at, at the maximum. And it, when you go to that training gown at Burnley, it absolutely transformed it, mm. absolutely transformed. You know, he, it, the, not just the facilities and the, the building itself, but, you know, they got themselves to Cat 1 and that was le- that was driven by him there. Um, I think they've, they've been downgraded to Cat 2, but, you know, that there's there's loads of COVID issues around that. But this still, again, are similar similar to, you know, where Burnley is situated. Their best players will always be taken by the Manchester clubs or the, the, the um, Liverpool or Everton. So they have to be better at the relationships with other, other clubs. But, yeah, I, I'm always impressed with him. I just think that people... People look at him, that, that what he looks like, how he talks, his, his voice. I know it's ridiculous, but people do make assumptions of, of how people talk and, and what they look like. But he is one. Of, he was one of the leaders in creating a culture with resources that were nowhere near as good as the resources at, at other clubs and managed to stay in the Premier League all those years. So, you know, he's a valuable asset and he will be looking and choosing his next job because his next job's important because it will it will bring all those experiences together. Yeah, well, he's certainly a veteran of relegation struggles. On that, Seb, what of this season's potential strugglers? You know, when you look at, despite that first day win, Bournemouth, it doesn't seem that they've got enough quality to survive. And I know that's a ridiculous statement probably to make so early on, but you look at it and you just think, that's not enough. Yeah, uh, the word have a Bournemouth is not necessarily within the first 11, although that's not the strongest. I think there isn't a huge amount of depth there. That's a little bit of a problem. I'm generally quite positive about Nottingham Forest, but that could change depending on how well they start. Didn't have a great time at Newcastle. I like the players they brought in. Awani is a very, very fine forward, very modern, very capable, but it's kind of symptomatic of where the, what, what that squad is at the moment. If he starts well, he'll do well. If he's in September, October and it's not going for him, that's a different situation. That's very, very tough. So they're on the chopping board too. It's a funny one. I actually think that, um, I think this is a much stronger league than last year in the sense that not only have we lost, you know, Norwich, who I think we we all knew were going to struggle again because that's kind of part of their mentality. They weren't accepting of relegation, but they didn't rage against it in the way that other teams have in the past. I think if you, you look at the improvement at Newcastle, you're not going to get the same level of dysfunction at Everton. I know they lost at the weekend, but I was generally quite impressed with the things that Lampard was able to do without a proper forward. I thought Alex Iwobi played extremely well, and I don't really like Alex Iwobi as a player, but he surprised me. I thought he did excellently in that sort of very static midfield role, um, very mature performance. And also they signed a guy called Amadou Anana from Lille, who I saw very briefly when he was playing for Hamburg for a season, and he's, a, he's going to be a super player. Honestly, he's um, he will change that midfield and solve a problem that's been there for quite a few years now and I expect them to be much better. So I think we be very, very competitive. I think we might be back to the old kind of 40-point days of maybe we get a straggler or two, but you have to get past that level to stay up because there's there's a lot of firepower in in that part of the division now. Like if you're thinking about even someone like a couple of years ago, we'd have, we'd have had Crystal Palace in the conversation for relegation. Well, that's a pretty strong team, like full of good 
capable young players who are only getting better. So the bar has really never been higher. So at the moment, I, I just don't feel confident in not damning someone to relegation, but just I don't want to put myself in a situation where I've come back on in six months and I've I've relegated Southampton or something. Because <laughs> I, I, I'm fairly optimistic about everybody. I, I can make the case for... I, I think Southampton will be good. I, I, I think I could see Forrest surviving. I, I think Everton will be a lot better. I don't think see Palace will even be anywhere close to relegation. You know, a couple of people have Wolves down there, but I mean, they've just signed Guedes. He's a brilliant, brilliant footballer. And uh, Nathan Collins from Burnley, who I, I think is a tremendous pickup in, at centre-back. I think he's an excellent player, even for the fee. So I think it's a good league. And um, God, well, that, that's a that's a great bit of fence-sitting, isn't it? Like, <laughs> Mind Everyone's the splinters. Great. Mind Everyone's the splinters. Great. Please, yeah. nobody say anything nasty to me on social media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, we'll, we'll, I would imagine, Lucy, we'll find out a little bit about Southampton and also Leeds at the weekend, won't we, at St Mary's? Yeah, I, I worry. I, I mean, I, I'm probably glass half empty because I, rather than be confident in teams, I worry about a lot more teams. And I think that's probably means the same thing as what Seb's saying because if they're all pretty much similar and there's no real really really weak teams then you know there's quite a few that we're looking over the shoulder but yeah I I worry about Everton I worry about Wolves just simply because the uh, injury to Jimenez will make a difference if they don't if they don't I think they probably needed a, a couple of forwards before then so they need to be careful of that however having watched them against Leeds they had everything apart from putting the ball in the back of the net and I agree about Collins you know he works really well with with Kilman as the, the the move to a back four. But yeah, Southampton leads. Yeah, Hassan Hutel. Obviously they have they are signing young players with a hoping for a, a sell on value. But whilst they're doing that and recruiting like that, they need to keep winning. I think that Hassan Hutel was frustrated with the gap between his club and Spurs at the weekend. But you know a lot of clubs will be frustrated with the gap between them and Spurs this season because I think Spurs are, are you know have hit the ground running. But I think with Hassan Hootle, a, a, a stick that he was beaten with was his lack of, of flexibility with that 4 2 2 system. But he's changed that to that a 3 5 2 and still has the pressing principles, but is a little bit more pragmatic. But if it works, it, it's absolutely brilliant. But it, it, if it doesn't, then you get caught on the break. You defenders have not got the quality to defend 1v1 and, and then they've got a problem and they make errors and that affects confidence and you know spiral downwards so I think that I think Southampton will have enough I worry about Forrest because Forrest even though Cooper's brilliant then he's got to you know I think his first five games include Manchester City so he's got to build the first 11 with probably eight or nine new players whilst playing Newcastle the lost West Ham, Everton, Spurs and Man City in the first five games. And if you lose too many, then that then affects confidence. So you've got to manage a lot of change in the short term. Yeah, what's come across very strongly to me today is that football is a people business. And as we all know, those people are sometimes treated pretty badly. I want to end by taking Barcelona as a case in point. Now, I fell in love with that club from the moment... I stepped into Camp Nou for the first time. I loved the kit, the creativity, the passion. The concept seemed perfect. But what does that mean in practice? Very, very little, it seems. 
Barcelona are in dispute with La Liga about whether they actually have the money to pay for, and certainly register, their summer signings. They're putting immense unfair pressure on players to take massive pay cuts. The worst case, Frankie de Jong. They want to rip up his present contract and replace it with a deal signed on lower terms in 2019. It's a brutal process that smacks of desperation and ruins what remains of their reputation. In the meantime, and on a happier note, thanks to Lucy, Seb and of course Sean for their insight. And thanks to you for listening. Please tell us what we're doing right and what we can improve. Best way to do that is by popping us a review on Apple. I promise we'll be listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.